Uh, to begin this morning, let's all take refuge together. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. So last night as we were coming back from the 12-hour chant for peace, which is not a very lovely event for many of you were there, uh, we chanted from 9 in the morning till 9 at night. And previously we had done 24-hour chants here. Probably we did oh, 14 or 15 years of them. <clears throat> so we'd start you know, on Saturday morning and on Sunday morning or start Friday night and Saturday night. And it's a real um, total, a total practice of being present and chanting and chanting all the different groups that come through. As we were coming back, I was asking people, well, what should we talk about this morning? And Austin said, longing. So let's, uh, let's work with longing. What's longing? That's not a rhetorical question. Thinking that you don't have something that you want. Thinking there's something that you you just see an empty hole where something should go. An empty hole where something should go. Wishing to embody. Wanting to embody something something else. Uh-huh. What else? What's longing? Searching. Searching. Searching, yearning, desiring, desiring. love, love. lots of kinds of longing. So a dictionary definition is a strong, persistent yearning or desire, especially one that cannot be fulfilled. So desire, wishing, wanting, hoping for. And as you all know from your own experience, we all have lots of desires. We're all filled with desire. If we were going to buy, go to a convenience store and decided to buy a Twinkie, they still make Twinkies. Yeah. And you said, okay, I want to get a special gluten-free, low-sugar, vegan uh, Twinkie, with no additives in it and no artificial coloring, I want to get the perfect Twinkie. We would do that because we hope that that perfect Twinkie is going to give us a sense of satisfaction, that we're going to get something from it, right? And some people, that would be the the antithesis of something desirable, but for some people, they like hockey pucks. So we have desire for all kinds of things. And we always are hoping that whatever we are desiring is going to be of benefit to us, is going to give us pleasure, is going to turn out to be something that's satisfying. Is that your experience? I see a few tentative nods. Maybe that's not your experience. Thank you. A real, a real, a real yes. 
So we choose a job, a partner, we choose a vacation, we choose a situation, and we are hoping, hoping that we have made the best choice. My, my sister is going to um, Italy, and someone of their little group is planning it, and they're trying to plan every single day meticulously so that they have maximum pleasure. You know, maximum pleasure and no problems. And so they're planning and planning and planning and planning and planning and planning and planning every hour of every day with that intention. We all know what that kind of planning results in. We come to a spiritual center. We take up a practice. And we hope our intention is that it's pleasurable, that it's satisfying, that it fulfills something. If we, if we didn't, we wouldn't be here. And sometimes, as you know, as we all know, things, um, we make a choice knowing that it may not feel so great right at first, but fundamentally we sure the hope that it'll be a benefit. People who go to the gym, um, no pain, no gain. Because we hope that by going through whatever challenge there is, there'll be a, a lasting benefit of some sort. And then, of course, there's the antithesis of that. You know, we've, we are looking for satisfaction, we're looking for pleasure, we're looking for, and we decide that's not going to work, that's not, that's not good. The one I have isn't good enough, I'll go look for another one, like the one I had, but better. I'll go look for another partner, but a better partner. I'll go look for better ice cream, I'll go look for better Twinkies. And so we have a particular desire, we do our very best to find it satisfying and beneficent. And what happens to you eat the perfect Twinkie and you feel great satisfaction, what happens then? More. It's over. Again. You find a really good job, everything is going along well, and what happens? You get bored, you say, well, I need a vacation, it's overwhelming, it's too much, I'll go find a better one. I think it happens with partners, too. People find, oh, perfect partner, really just satisfying, meets, meets me, and then... We look for something else. So we pick something that we, and we do this all day long, something we think is going to be satisfying, and sometimes it is satisfying for a little while, minute, day, year. And then, of course, it becomes, at best, boring. You know, it's lost its juice. 
It becomes tedious. I'm hungry again. I need to get back on the roller coaster because, you know, I've, I've recovered from my nausea from the first time and I'm ready to go and get on the roller coaster again. And sometimes when we have that looking, we decide, well, there's no way that I'm going to, this, this is going to work. I've tried so many different ways to be uh, satisfied. I've tried this and this and this and this and this. And we shift to the opposite. And we just shift to aversion. And we shift to indifference. Seeing people in relationship who've tried relationships and decided that relationships don't work, therefore they become indifferent to relationships or averse to relationships. Desire fulfilled breeds more desire. Longing fulfilled brings more longing because nothing stays the same. We get the perfect person, place, thing. We get the perfect ice cream. We get the perfect Twinkie. And it disappears. It changes. And because we are attributed to the thing, we go and look for another thing. And we look for another hit, and another hit, and another hit. And the cycle goes around and around and around. It's called samsara. The endless cycle of becoming, the endless cycle of of I want more, the endless cycle of what's the next thing. One of our members, um, not here right now, and has kind of moved to a different location, decided that they wanted to completely indulge in every single desire they could. They wanted to become satiated with desire. So they found a community that was, that was uh, whose Overt intention was that, and they used sex and drugs and food and relationships and just filled themselves up, and they were left empty. They had hair-raising stories of debauchery, but... In some Buddhist traditions, they say desires are inexhaustible. I vow to cut their roots. Desires are inexhaustible. And there are some traditions that say, okay, well, if desires are inexhaustible and desires cause suffering because they, they, they can't be satisfied, they leave to more and more and more, well, I'm going to just get rid of desire. I'm going to cut desire off. I'm not going to desire anything. There was a, a video that Chosen and I saw of a, of a non-Western Theradinvad monk who was looking at a bowl of water, and he was saying, this water, I crave this water, and that's the source of my suffering, is the craving for this water. It's crazy. But the Buddha did that. The Buddha decided he had all these these satisfactions, all these things that he was, uh, the benefits of being a, living in a royal household. And he said, no, that's not going to work. I'm going to go the opposite. I'll go and be an ascetic. And if you look at the Buddha's life, there's some hair-raising ascetic stories in there. So 
So what do we do with longing? If we're looking for longing, desire, and wanting, and we're trying to fulfill it with something out there, which is inevitably slips away and leaves us bereft, what do we do? Well, first off, we keep trying. It is the, it seems like the human condition. We try and try and try in uh, EST, an old program that was back in the 70s. They used to say one of the things that uh, if, you're, if rats are in a maze, they will quickly learn that a particular track is a dead end. But human beings just keep going down the same track over and over again, hoping that there's a different outcome. So let's look at desire itself. And there are two kinds of of desire. There is, you know, the natural craving of the body, you're hungry, thirsty. But the desire that causes suffering, what's its genesis? Dissatisfaction with what's happening right now. Dissatisfaction. Where does dissatisfaction come from? Possibly eternal. Possibly eternal. What's the source of dissatisfaction? We're all sitting right here. You know, we're fairly comfortable, easy, calm place. Restlessness comes in. Dissatisfaction comes in. Where does it come from? Believing my thoughts. Believing my thoughts. Separation. Separation. Expectations. Expectations. Not allowing things as they are. Excuse me? Self and other. Self and other. Separation, self and other. So we are in a particular situation, a particular circumstances, and suddenly the idea comes in our mind of, oh, there's something better. Oh, this isn't good enough. And of course, thoughts arise sometimes without our uh, intending them, but we grab a hold of it and say, oh, well, maybe that's true. There really is something better. I wonder where it is. And we start looking and searching and thinking, what's better, what's better, what's better? How can I get what I want? How can I get what I want? Thinking that if we get what we want, if I get everything I want, I'll be happy and satisfied. And it becomes an endless quest to be happy and satisfied based upon our thoughts. And we think the thoughts that arise come from memory. So we don't, you know, have fantasies that are completely alien to us. We have fantasies and imaginations based upon things that we've experienced in our life. Oh, that was pleasurable then. Oh, that was pleasurable then. Maybe if I do, and we grab a hold of the thought, and the thought itself is, creates dissatisfaction, dis-ease, dismay, distress, disappointment. When we believe the thoughts that this is not where my life is, that there's a better life someplace else, or people often with the inner critic 
the inner critical voice, they think there's a better me somewhere else. You know, the better me. I want the better me. And so, they, you know, the, the inner critic is saying, not good enough, not good enough, this is not right, this is not, you shouldn't be this way. There's a better me. But somehow, this one, the me that actually is, has become a source of distress, dismay. There's a better me, a better me. And then we go on the endless search of the better me. Why? Why is the reality of the breath that we're breathing, the reality of the life that we're living, the reality of sitting right here, not satisfying? Partly thought. Thoughts of separation, thoughts of otherness, thoughts, thoughts, thoughts. So one of the foundations of meditation is learning to bring the mind into the present, to feel the breath, and to find satisfaction right where we sit. To become familiar with and comfortable with our own skin. to be able to realize that this breath is the only breath I can breathe right now. This sensation in my knees or back or whatever is the only sensation right now in this moment I can feel. So the foundation of meditation is first off coming to the essential experience of the foundation of this life, starting with the body. It has to be a visceral, a visceral sitting, a visceral experience without categorizing. Each person's breath is totally unique. Each person feels their own legs and nobody else can feel them, or their own back or whatever. So the foundation of practice is not, let me get rid of all the things I don't want. Let me get all the things I do want. But the foundation of practice is let me turn my attention to what I actually have, what I actually can experience, what I actually can know, what I actually can taste and touch. Let me learn and have an anchoring in reality the reality of right here, right now. That's the foundation of meditation. Now, if we are sitting here, as you all are, and we are sitting here and we are breathing, which appears to me that you all are, and our mind is not someplace else, Our mind is not out in the woods or in the swimming pool or in Florida or wherever our minds go. If we're just here feeling the body and breathing, is there any problem? (laughs) If our minds are quiet and we're right here in this moment, 
where do the problems come from? The past and the future. They come from thought. So the foundation of meditation is, first off, pay attention to reality, be in the present moment, learn to experience life without thinking all the time, without constantly believing our thoughts of better, 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 somewhere else, somewhere else, somewhere else, there's a better me somewhere else, and really appreciating, accepting, this is the life I have. This is the body I have. Foundation of love is acceptance. No acceptance, no loving kindness. So, but we still, so we can take desire and longing, at least at this level we're looking at right now, and we can say, okay, I really, my desire is to be present. My desire is to feel what I'm feeling. My desire is to be here right now. My desire is for the activity of reality right now being breathed. It's a legitimate way of looking at desire. But the longing that uh, Austin was talking about, the longing of the heart, the longing, the, the kind of the incompleteness, the whole, the dissatisfaction, just wanting to be present is not enough. And you know, we've all seen that over and over again. We're in, the, in a room like this, we're, we're calm, we're present, we, we have a, a quiet mind for a little while, and we go outside, and 10 minutes later, you know, all the old habits are just back in full force. Because we haven't actually looked deeply enough into the nature of mind. We haven't actually looked deeply enough. We haven't had an experience of the fundamental wisdom. Fundamental wisdom is, as people said, no separation, no self, what's always present, the inclusive nature of mind, the oneness of all things, the realizing the, the completeness of this moment, the experience of the fundamental nature of reality is an important part of practice if we want it to sustain us, be present, to continue. We have to have some insight, some awakening. The rational mind keeps trying to do that, you know. It has its strategies and its way of doing it, and it keeps trying and trying and trying according to, to that mind, but that mind is inherently separating. And so the way that we begin to touch the fundamental wisdom is we go into the body as the body, we feel the body, and when we're feeling the body, when we're experiencing the body without separation, without standing outside and looking at it, but feeling it from the inside, we begin to touch the shapeless, the formless. We begin to see the fundamental wisdom that there's only this moment. When we actually see there's really only this moment and everything else is proliferating thought, we can relax. 
Say, oh, I can use my thoughts, but I don't have to believe my thoughts. So this experience of fundamental insight is a important step in practice. We go to Seshen, we go to these long retreats, we keep looking at the nature of mind, we keep looking at what's always present, we find the equanimity and the stability of what's present. And when we really see that there's a place that is present and satisfying and always there, we can relax. We can relax. We don't have to always try to be getting better. getting better out of dissatisfaction. Instead, we begin to have an inclusive mind because everything is part of our world. Everything is part of who we are. Now, if somebody has a a fundamental experience, a fundamental truth, sees the, the, the nature of things, that's great. But that does not solve the problem of how do we live our human life. There's a whole lot of acquired wisdom that we have to have. You know, you can't become, you can't have the wisdom of 60 or 70 in less than 60 or 70 years. You know, there's an acquired wisdom that takes time. There's no shortcut to spiritual maturity. But there is direct insight into fundamental truths at every age. And seeing the fundamental truth at whatever age we are at is inherently liberating. So, in essence, please practice. As we're sitting, come back over and over to what is, and then look and see deeply what is, what is, what knows that, what feels that, what's the experience of that. And this is not an inquiry with the mind. This is a a feeling into, feeling into the breath, feeling the body as the body, feeling the foundation. And the body, of course, is not a lump. It's got texture, it's got movement. So having the aspiration for awakening, having the aspiration to be fulfilled, having the aspiration for completeness, I think is the fundamental longing that we all have. And that fundamental longing, that fundamental longing is an experience It's not an idea. It's not something that we see with just thought. We see with our mind. And if we only recognize it with our mind, it's not satisfying. Because in order for it to be satisfying, it has to be a felt experience. So longing, in a way, is actually, and desire, in a way, is actually a perfect thing because it is so compelling and so calling that if we go into the experience instead of the object, instead of the thing that we that the mind says, oh, that's going to satisfy, that's going to make it go away. Instead, we feel the longing, we feel the desire, we feel that, we experience it in this present moment right now. It is a calling, a calling, a calling to wholeness, a calling to completeness, a calling to awakening. But the objects are not. So, please have confidence in whatever your direct experience is, 
if we go into the direct experience without the mediate, without the thought mediating it, without the thought conceptualizing, without the thought making conclusions about it, without the thought thought that judges and criticizes, if we go directly into the experience of being alive ourselves, right there is the place that we can touch fundamental truth. Right there is the place that fundamental longing is complete. Okay. I see. Everybody's asleep now, so we can it's a good sign to end. Comments, questions? Yes. Sounds like you know, the real source of one's truth is in a practice is, is you know physical or visible. That's what you're saying. It's you know, the entrance gate. Yeah. So what in the world does the mind good for? How do we live? Well, let's take advantage of this thing we have. So Hallelujah. How do we use it? Yeah. Hallelujah. We we use the mind when there's a problem. If it's a direct problem that we can actually solve and put our attention on, we can think, okay, what are the options here? What's the best choice here? When we're trying to solve a problem that, we, that isn't available, we're trying to solve a problem that has no connection with us, we're trying to solve a problem somebody else's mind, it's kind of futile. But when we have a, a problem that we have encountered, how do I pay my bills? Then, of course, we use the mind to, to concretely deal with the problems that we can deal with in the present moment. You know, in uh, Dharma we talk about there are five aspects of being a human being. You've got to have all five. You've got to have a body. You've got to have feelings in the body. You've got to have choice in the body. You've got to have thought. And you have to have consciousness. And without any of those, without all five of those, you're not really a human being. So, hallelujah, we can use our mind without being at the mercy of the mind's endless, endless what-ifing, catastrophizing. That's the way I would approach that. Anybody else? Ms. Mira? Here comes the microphone. Racing to you. Wholeheartedly, completely, (laughs) lacking nothing, no hesitation. The, the last piece that you said about feeling the desire is something that I've been working on and finding to be really helpful when, you know, like you said, it's based, often a desire is based on a memory of something else that I have experienced and being able to lean into uh, gratitude or appreciation of you know, oh, I, I did experience, you know, this aspect of a relationship before, and I can just feel the appreciation for that. And, you know, the, the, the longing that's coming up is a memory of that beautiful thing. But the, the, the thing that I'm curious about is there are also longings that come up that, that, uh, haven't actually been a part of my direct experience. Like I've seen it on a TV show or read it in a fantasy book or, you know, heard about it from somebody else 
that this was a great thing. And so I'm kind of curious, one, how, how to work with that when it's not something that I can just appreciate in, from my own life. And two, like, is there some way that, you know, education, exposure to a wide variety of things in the world, reading the news, you know, all this stuff can actually make us um, more unhappy because there's like exposure to all these things that we haven't experienced for ourselves in the world. Well, you know, I think having a rich life, having a life that is cosmopolitan, having a life that sees that there's many ways of looking at the world is a great advantage. It's just when the desire of this one is not good enough, and that one is the one I want, that's when the, that separation is when... So the nature of mind is inclusive. Um, so, mm-hmm, learn as much as you can, of course. But when we just, when we distrust our direct experience, thinking that somebody else has got the best life, that the rich and famous, if I was just rich and famous, that's the life that would be satisfying. That's crazy. So become as rich, rich in experience as you can. And it all is experienced right here. You can't experience something someplace else. You can only experience something right here. It's a big question, so I'll give you a Chosen, would you like to say something about this whole matter? Here, here's the microphone. Speedily. Well, first, I think the question about using the mind, even the skill with the mind, is a really important question. Our practice isn't intended to, for us to end up Dissatisfaction, envy, jealousy, 
and all the elements of what makes us unhappy and makes the whole world unhappy. So sometimes I have people think, pardon an hour, and 50 minutes, how many minutes do I have to be justified? And how many minutes do I think I should allocate to the past, thinking about the past? And how many minutes do I think I should allocate about to thinking of the future? And then there's a category of creative thought. How many minutes do I allocate to creative thought? Like looking out the window. <clears throat> Those um, sunflowers are very beautiful out there. And the bees go out of their mind. So again, the kind of creative mind says, I am free. More sunflowers. <laughs> but this year, we thought, oh, last year the cosmos was so beautiful. This year we'll have more. So I collected seed and delivered seed and <laughs> me and I, we're going to have like the, the best cosmos garden. And we ended up with, they're all crowded out. There's way too many, and then we're each one is starving. And then we were restricting watering, and we didn't have water. So you can see how quickly a desire for more of something that we appreciate turns into hopelessness. So just to, to notice that in the outside of how we do it over and over again, our, our longing is here, but I find that our longing is to be connected to everything. And when that happens, we find everything interesting and beautiful. And we've all had glimpses of that. This practice opens that awareness very, very, you can walk back and forth between thinking and acting. Can we say satisfied in that place where we more than that? Deeply nourished, deeply supported, if we do that. Because it's all what that's all that's what is we taste. Pleasure, satisfaction, bliss. So to be able to enter that, yes, is the magic of practice. <clears throat> but it doesn't begin decades to years and generations, generations and generations. It takes a lot of practice. Thank you. Okay, well, maybe we'll end with Austin. Austin is talking about longing. See what he's reflected on, learned. Advice, insights, wisdom. I was just reflecting on something I noticed last week more clearly, but it's been happening to me for years. Um, which is, I would say more often than not, when I wake up in the morning, or from, I wake up from a nap, there's, the first thing I notice is a sense of desire. Um, and it's just like a raw desire. And then I notice my mind, 
quickly go towards what? What's the object of that desire? And I'm like, okay, I'll go get some food, get a drink, all these different things that will satisfy it. But if I don't notice that, that chain of action, desire, then object, I just think it's object. Um, yeah, I guess just that weird state of waking up. There's more space to see the desire as desire and not as a need or object. What else? Yeah, what else? <laughs> um, I guess from my experience right now, I've been noticing as you've been talking about longing and desire, a lot of inner critic coming out. <laughs> um, and I didn't notice that. Like, <laughs> how do I forget to do it? Um, but I guess I'm just learning very subtle, deeper, deeper levels. So longing and the inner critic, what's, what's the connection there? I feel like the inner critic is trying to satisfy longing in a very unskillful way. It's, it's trying to, it's like an agent to, for satisfying my spiritual longing, but it's really not good at it. <laughs> mm -hmm. The inner critic and the outer judge, if they are looking at, instead of feeling the direct, direct desire for improvement, the desire for wholeness, the desire for completeness, we get sidetracked in the thing. You know, if I just had longer hair, if I just was, you know, 40 pounds heavier, if I was just whatever the, then the inner critic gets mixed up. We get mixed up. Okay. Anything else? Yeah, also just the discernment aspect of the inner critic is useful in recognizing. And Give us a paragraph on that. A paragraph on discernment? Yeah, the discernment of the inner critic, what you meant by that. Um, like that's, it seems like that's, that's the, the inner critic without any heavy negative baggage is just like this very sharp, like, in my mind, there's an inner critical wit. Like, it notices things that are really, mm -hmm. oh, mm -hmm. that wasn't totally like on alive with how you want to act. Mm -hmm. Like, very quick and cutting. Um, and it's useful if it's just that, mm -hmm. noticing. Mm -hmm. Then there's the whole, like, oh, no, I'm bad. It's added on to the sharpness. Okay, added on to the sharpness. Nice, nice phrase. Anything else? No. You sure? No. 
Thank you. Thank you all. Let's do the four buddies after those.